Book Two, Chapter Twenty One of the Bostonians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Morant. The Bostonians by Henry James. Chapter Twenty One. Basil Ransom lived in New York, rather far to the eastward and in the upper reaches of the town. He occupied two small shabby rooms in a somewhat decayed mansion which stood next to the corner of the Second Avenue. The corner itself was formed by a considerable grocer's shop, the near neighborhood of which was fatal to any pretensions Ransom and his fellow lodgers might have had in regard to gentility of situation. The house had a red, rusty face and faded green shutters, of which the slats were limp and at variance with each other. In one of the lower windows was suspended a fly-blown card, with the words table-board affixed in letters cut, not very neatly, out of colored paper, of graduated tints, and surrounded with a small band of stamped gilt. The two sides of the shop were protected by an immense penthouse shed, which projected over a greasy pavement and was supported by wooden posts fixed in the curbstone. Beneath it, on the dislocated flags, barrels and baskets were freely and picturesquely grouped. An open celery way yawned beneath the feet of those who might pause to gaze too fondly on the savory wares displayed in the window. A strong odor of smoked fish, combined with a fragrance of molasses, hung about the spot. The pavement toward the gutters was fringed with dirty panniers, heaped with potatoes, carrots, and onions and a smart bright wagon with the horse detached from the shafts drawn up on the edge of the abominable road it contained holes and ruts a foot deep and immemorial accumulations of stagnant mud imparted an idle rural pastoral air to a scene otherwise perhaps expressive of a rank civilization the establishment was of the kind known to new yorkers as a dutch grocery and red-faced, yellow-haired, bare-armed vendors might have been observed to lounge in the doorway. I mention it not on account of any particular influence it may have had on the life or the thoughts of Basil Ransom, but for old acquaintance' sake and that of local color. Besides which, a figure is nothing without a setting, and our young man came and went every day with rather an indifferent, unperceiving step, it is true, among the objects I have briefly designated. One of his rooms was directly above the street door of the house. Such a dormitory, when it is so exiguous, is called in the nomenclature of New York a hall bedroom. The sitting room beside it was slightly larger, and they both commanded a row of tenements no less degenerate than Ransom's own habitation, houses built forty years before, and already sere and superannuated. These were also painted red, and the bricks were accentuated by a white line. They were garnished, on the first floor, with balconies covered with small tin roofs, striped in different colors, and with an elaborate iron lattice-work, which gave them a repressive, cage-like appearance, and caused them slightly to resemble the little boxes for peeping unseen into the street, which are a feature of Oriental towns." Such posts of observation commanded a view of the grocery on the corner, of the relaxed and disjointed roadway, enlivened at the curbstone with an occasional ash-barrel or with gas-lamps drooping from the perpendicular, and westward, at the end of the truncated vista, of the fantastic skeleton of the elevated railway, 
overhanging the transverse longitudinal street, which it darkened and smothered with the immeasurable spinal column and myriad clutching paws of an antediluvian monster. If the opportunity were not denied me here, I should like to give some account of Basil Ransom's interior, of certain curious persons of both sexes, for the most part not favorites of fortune, who had found an obscure asylum there, some picture of the crumpled little table d'hote at two dollars and a half a week, where everything felt sticky which went forward in the low-ceiling basement, under the conduct of a couple of shuffling negresses, who mingled in the conversation and indulged in low, mysterious chuckles when it took a facetious turn. But we need, in strictness, concern ourselves with it no further than to gather the implication that the young Mississippian, even a year and a half after that momentous visit of his to Boston, had not made his profession very lucrative. He had been diligent, he had been ambitious, but he had not yet been successful. During the few weeks preceding the moment at which we meet him again, he had even begun to lose faith altogether in his earthly destiny. It became much of a question with him whether success in any form was written there, whether for a hungry young Mississippian, without means, without friends, wanting, too, in the highest energy, the wisdom of the serpent, personal arts and national prestige, the game of life was to be won in New York. He had been on the point of giving it up and returning to the home of his ancestors, where, as he heard from his mother, there was still just a sufficient supply of hot corn-cake to support existence. He had never believed much in his luck, but during the last year it had been guilty of aberrations surprising even to a constant and imperturbable victim of fate. Not only had he not extended his connection, but he had lost most of the little business which was an object of complacency to him a twelve-month before. He had had none but small jobs and he had made a mess of more than one of them. Such accidents had not had a happy effect upon his reputation. He had been able to perceive that this fair flower may be nipped when it is so tender a bud as scarcely to be palpable. He had formed a partnership with a person who seemed likely to repair some of his deficiencies, a young man from Rhode Island, acquainted, according to his own expression, with the inside track. But this gentleman himself, as it turned out, would have been better for a good deal of remodeling, and Ransom's principal deficiency, which was, after all, that of cash, was not less apparent to him after his colleague, prior to a sudden and unexplained departure for Europe, had drawn the slender accumulations of the firm out of the bank. Ransom sat for hours in his office, waiting for clients who either did not come, or, if they did come, did not seem to find him encouraging, as they usually left him with the remark that they would think what they would do. They thought to little purpose, and seldom reappeared, so that at last he began to wonder whether there were not a prejudice against his southern complexion. Perhaps they didn't like the way he spoke. If they could show him a better way, he was willing to adopt it. But the manner of New York could not be acquired by precept, and example, somehow, was not in this case contagious. He wondered whether he were stupid and unskilled, and he was finally obliged to confess to himself that he was unpractical. This confession was in itself a proof of the fact, for nothing could be less fruitful than such a speculation, terminating in such a way. 
He was perfectly aware that he cared a great deal for the theory, and so his visitors must have thought when they found him, with one of his long legs twisted round the other, reading a volume of de Tocqueville. That was the land of reading he liked. He had thought a great deal about social and economical questions, forms of government, and the happiness of peoples. The convictions he had arrived at were not such as mixed gracefully with the time-honored verities a young lawyer, looking out for business, is in the habit of taking for granted. But he had to reflect that these doctrines would probably not contribute any more to his prosperity in Mississippi than in New York. Indeed, he scarcely could think of the country where they would be a particular advantage to him. It came home to him that his opinions were stiff, whereas in comparison his effort was lax, and he accordingly began to wonder whether he might not make a living by his opinions. He had always had a desire for public life. To cause one's ideas to be embodied in national conduct appeared to him the highest form of human enjoyment. But there was little enough that was public in his solitary studies, and he asked himself what was the use of his having an office at all, and why he might not as well carry on his profession at the Astor Library, where in his spare hours and on chance holidays he did an immense deal of suggestive reading. He took copious notes and memoranda, and these things sometimes shaped themselves in a way that might possibly commend them to the editors of periodicals. Readers, perhaps, would come if clients didn't, so he produced, with a great deal of labor, half a dozen articles, from which, when they were finished, it seemed to him that he had omitted all the points he wished most to make, and addressed them to the powers that preside over weekly and monthly publications. They were all declined with thanks, and he would have been forced to believe that the accent of his languid climb brought him luck as little under the pen as on the lips had not another explanation been suggested by one of the more explicit of his oracles, in relation to a paper on the rights of minorities. This gentleman pointed out that his doctrines were about three hundred years behind the age. Doubtless some magazine of the sixteenth century would have been very happy to print them. This threw light on his own suspicion that he was attached to causes that could only, in the nature of things, be unpopular. The disagreeable editor was right about his being out of date, only he had got the time wrong. He had come centuries too soon. He was not too old, but too new. Such an impression, however, would not have prevented him from going into politics, if there had been any other way to represent constituencies than by being elected. People might be found eccentric enough to vote for him in Mississippi, but meanwhile, where should he find the twenty-dollar greenbacks which it was his ambition to transmit from time to time to his female relations, confined so constantly to a farinaceous diet? It came over him with some force that his opinions would not yield interest, and the evaporation of this pleasing hypothesis made him feel like a man in an open boat, at sea, who should just have parted with his last rag of canvas." I shall not attempt a complete description of Ransom's ill-starred views, being convinced that the reader will guess them as he goes, for they had a frolicsome, ingenious way of peeping out of the young man's conversation. I shall do them sufficient justice in saying that he was by natural disposition a good deal of a stoic, and that, as the result of a considerable intellectual experience, he was, in social and political matters, a reactionary. 
I suppose he was very conceited, for he was much addicted to judging his age. He thought it talkative, querulous, hysterical, maudlin, full of false ideas, of unhealthy germs, of extravagant, dissipated habits, for which a great reckoning was in store. He was an immense admirer of the late Thomas Carlyle, and was very suspicious of the encroachments of modern democracy. I know not exactly how these queer heresies had planted themselves, but he had a longish pedigree. It had flowered at one time with English royalists and cavaliers, and he seemed at moments to be inhabited by some transmitted spirit of a robust but narrow ancestor, some broad-faced wig-wearer or sword-bearer, with a more primitive conception of manhood than our modern temperament appears to require, and a program of human felicity much less varied. He liked his pedigree, he revered his forefathers, and he rather pitied those who might come after him. In saying so, however, I betray him a little, for he never mentioned such feelings as these. Though he thought the age too talkative, as I have hinted, he liked to talk as well as anyone, but he could hold his tongue, if that were more expressive, and he usually did so when his perplexities were greatest. He had been sitting for several evenings in a beer-cellar, smoking his pipe with a profundity of reticence. This attitude was so unbroken that it marked a crisis, the complete, the acute consciousness of his personal situation. It was the cheapest way he knew of spending an evening. At this particular establishment, the Chopin were very tall and the beer was very good, and as the host and most of the guests were German, and their colloquial tongue was unknown to him, he was not drawn into any undue expenditure of speech. He watched his smoke and he thought, thought so hard that at last he appeared to himself to have exhausted the thinkable. When this moment of combined relief and dismay arrived, on the last of the evenings that we are concerned with, he took his way down Third Avenue and reached his humble dwelling, till within a short time there had been a resource for him at such an hour and in such a mood, a little variety actress, who lived in the house, and with whom he had established the most cordial relations, was often having her supper. She took it somewhere, every night, after the theatre, in the dim, close dining-room, and he used to drop in and talk to her. But she had lately married, to his great amusement, and her husband had taken her on a wedding tour, which was to be at the same time professional. On this occasion he mounted, with rather a heavy tread, to his rooms, where, on the rickety writing-table in the parlour, he found a note from Mrs. Luna. I need not reproduce it, and extend so. A pale reflection of it will serve. She reproached him with neglecting her, wanted to know what had become of him, whether he had grown too fashionable for a person who cared only for serious society. She accused him of having changed and inquired as to the reason of his coldness. Was it too much to ask whether he could tell her at least in what manner she had offended him? She used to think they were so much in sympathy. He expressed her own ideas about everything so vividly. She liked intellectual companionship, and she had none now. She hoped very much he would come and see her, as he used to do six months before, the following evening and however much she might have sinned or he might have altered, she was at least always his affectionate cousin Adeline. What the deuce does she want of me now? 
It was with this somewhat ungracious exclamation that he tossed away his cousin Adeline's missive. The gesture might have indicated that he meant to take no notice of her. Nevertheless, after a day had elapsed, he presented himself before her. He knew what she wanted of old, that is, a year ago. She had wanted him to look after her property and to be a tutor to her son. He had lent himself good-naturedly to this desire. He was touched by so much confidence. But the experiment had speedily collapsed. Mrs. Luna's affairs were in the hands of trustees, who had complete care of them, and Ransom instantly perceived that his function would be simply to meddle in things that didn't concern him. The levity with which she had exposed him to the derision of the lawful guardians of her fortune opened his eyes to some of the dangers of cousinship. Nevertheless, he said to himself that he might turn an honest penny by giving an hour or two every day to the education of her little boy. But this, too, proved a brief illusion. Ransom had to find his time in the afternoon. He left his business at five o'clock and remained with his young kinsman till the hour of dinner. At the end of a few weeks he thought himself lucky in retiring without broken shins. That Newton's little nature was remarkable had often been insisted on by his mother, but it was remarkable, Ransom saw, for the absence of any of the qualities which attach a teacher to a pupil. He was in truth an insufferable child, entertaining for the Latin language a personal, physical hostility, which expressed itself in convulsions of rage. During these paroxysms he kicked furiously at everyone and everything, at poor Ranny, at his mother, at Messrs. Andrews and Stoddard, at the illustrious men of Rome, at the universe in general, to which, as he lay on his back on the carpet, he presented a pair of singularly active little heels. Mrs. Luna had a way of being present at his lessons, and when they passed, as sooner or later they were sure to, into the stage I have described, she interceded for her overwrought darling, reminded Ransom that these were the signs of an exquisite sensibility, begged that the child might be allowed to rest a little, and spent the remainder of the time in conversation with the preceptor. It came to seem to him very soon that he was not earning his fee, besides which it was disagreeable to him to have pecuniary relations with a lady who had not the art of concealing from him that she liked to place him under obligations. He resigned his tutorship and drew a long breath, having a vague feeling that he had escaped a danger. He could not have told you exactly what it was, and he had a certain sentimental, provincial respect for women which even prevented him from attempting to give a name to it in his own thoughts. He was addicted with the ladies to the old forms of address and of gallantry. He held that they were delicate, agreeable creatures, whom Providence had placed under the protection of the bearded sex, and it was not merely a humorous idea with him that whatever might be the defects of southern gentlemen, they were at any rate remarkable for their chivalry. He was a man who still, in a slangy age, could pronounce that word with a perfectly serious face. This boldness did not prevent him from thinking that women were essentially inferior to men, and infinitely tiresome when they declined to accept the lot which men had made for them. He had the most definite notions about their place in nature, in society, and was perfectly easy in his mind as to whether it excluded them from any proper homage. The chivalrous man paid that tax with alacrity. He admitted their rights. 
these consisted in a standing claim to the generosity and tenderness of the stronger race the exercise of such feelings was full of advantage for both sexes and they flowed most freely of course when women were gracious and grateful it may be said that he had a higher conception of politeness than most of the persons who desired the advent of female lawmakers. When I have added that he hated to see women eager and argumentative, and thought that their softness and docility were the inspiration, the opportunity, the highest of man, I shall have sketched a state of mind which will doubtless strike many readers as painfully crude. It had prevented Basil Ransom, at any rate, from putting the dots on his eyes, as the French say, in this gradual discovery that Mrs. Luna was making love to him. The process went on a long time before he became aware of it. He had perceived very soon that she was a tremendously familiar little woman, that she took, more rapidly than he had ever known, a high degree of intimacy for granted. But as she had seemed to him neither fresh nor very beautiful— so he could not easily have represented to himself why she should take it into her head to marry. It would never have occurred to him to doubt that she wanted marriage. An obscure and penniless Mississippian, with womankind of his own to provide for. He could not guess that he answered to a certain secret ideal of Mrs. Luna's, who loved the landed gentry even when landless, who adored a southerner under any circumstances, who thought her kinsman a fine, manly, melancholy, disinterested type, and who was sure that her views of public matters, the questions of the age, the vulgar character of modern life, would meet with a perfect response in his mind. She could see by the way he talked that he was a conservative, and this was the motto inscribed upon her own silken banner. She took this unpopular line both by temperament and by reaction from her sister's extreme views the sight of the dreadful people that they brought about her in reality olive was distinguished and discriminating and adeline was the dupe of confusions in which the worst was apt to be mistaken for the better she talked to ransom about the inferiority of republics the distressing persons she had met abroad in the legations of the united states the bad manners of servants and shopkeepers in that country the hope she entertained that the good old families would make a stand. But he never suspected that she cultivated these topics. Her treatment of them struck him as highly comical, for the purpose of leading him to the altar, of beguiling the way. Least of all could he suppose that she would be indifferent to his want of income, a point in which he failed to do her justice, for, thinking the fact that he had remained poor a proof of delicacy in that shopkeeping age, it gave her much pleasure to reflect that, as Newton's little property was settled on him, with safeguards which showed how long-headed poor Mr. Luna had been, and large-hearted, too, since to what he left her, no disagreeable conditions, such as eternal mourning, for instance, were attached, that as Newton, I say, enjoyed the pecuniary independence which befitted his character, her own income was ample and even for two and she might give herself the luxury of taking a husband who should owe her something. Basil Ransom did not divine all this, but he divined that it was not for nothing that Mrs. Luna wrote him little notes every other day, that she proposed to drive him in the park at unnatural hours, and that when he said he had his business to attend to, she replied, "'Oh, a plague on your business! I am sick of that word. One hears of nothing else in America.' There are ways of getting on without business, if you would only take them. 
he seldom answered her notes, and he disliked extremely the way in which, in spite of her love of form and order, she attempted to clamber in at the window of one's house when one had locked the door, so that he began to interspace his visits considerably, and at last made them very rare. When I reflect on his habits of almost superstitious politeness to women, it comes over me that some very strong motive must have operated to make him give his friendly, his only too friendly, cousin the cold shoulder. Nevertheless, when he received her reproachful letter, after it had had time to work a little, he said to himself that he had perhaps been unjust and even brutal, and as he was easily touched by remorse of this kind, he took up the broken thread. End of Book 2, Chapter 21 Recording by Liz Morant, lizmorant at gmail.com.